Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. A happy end of the work week to you, my friends, the best listeners in the land, my first-gen brethren. How are you? I hope you're well. I hope you're out there hunting. And speaking of which, maybe you aren't all into the deer game or the elk game or even the small game game. Wow, that's kind of weird to say. Maybe you're really into bird hunting. Maybe you're really into waterfowl or even upland bird hunting now if you live in a few states this is already old news you've already been getting after maybe you've been getting after some grouse or maybe uh, you're in one of the few states that have a kind of early opening pheasant season or maybe you've been hunting some quail somewhere i don't know what you're hunting but here in the great state of iowa pheasants open this coming weekend now unfortunately i won't be able to take part in it and to be honest with you i am such a hardcore uh, deer hunter guy i guess you could say that i like to use opening weekend of pheasants to actually go out and deer hunt because there's so many pheasant hunters out there that they're pushing deer all over the place and it's a great time to be in a deer stand so there's a little free tip for you by the way but I do after that initial push and uh, um, as the year gets later and later, I love to get out and hunt pheasants with my two bird dogs. And the guy who is on this episode is probably the most passionate bird hunter I've ever talked to and he does it for all the right reasons. And what I love about this guest, Mr. Ron Bame of the Hunting Dog Podcast, is that he is involved with the hunting dog world from, I guess the best way to describe it is from the blue collar side all the way up to the white collar side. He does all the weekend warrior type hunting that a lot of guys like myself do, you know, wearing car hearts and, and, uh, uh, you know, there's the same boots they wear, wear for deer hunting or for doing chores around the, the house or farm or whatever. But he's also judging with NAVDA. And he does, he, he, he's totally immersed within the hunting dog world. Of course, he does his own podcast. We'll talk about that a little bit in this episode. But he is through and through a gun dog guy and it's just a ton of fun to sit down and talk with him now when i say sit down and talk with him as you well know most of these episodes are recorded remotely i like to use skype it works pretty well um but uh certainly not perfectly and certainly not without its quirks and i say quirks specifically because something odd happened when uh ron and i were recording this episode uh for whatever reason i've never had to do this before but skype made it appear as though while we were talking we had our video call going it appeared that ron and i were having this conversation in like a roman bath or something or some outdoor hot tub or whatever (laughs) with most people it would uh be incredibly awkward uh but with Ron, everything, he, he just rolls with the punches, man. He, 
he had me laughing like crazy. And uh, there were a lot of parts of that that uh, didn't make the final cut. Speaking of which, there were some additional technical difficulties with this. Uh, my normal recording software was uh, uh, having a malfunction. And not only that, but the website for the company was totally down. And uh, I couldn't, there was nothing I could do about it. So I had to record this on the Skype recorder instead of the software recorder. And the reason I bring that up is it then limits me to what I can edit. Uh, normally I have two tracks to edit with. Sorry if you can hear my dog walking around in the background. <laughs> now you know I really do have bird dogs. Um, but normally I can record in two tracks and I can edit both of us, you know, uh, to, for the best sound quality. But since this had to be recorded through Skype itself, um, we're both in one track, so I can't, you know, edit as much. So the audio is not going to be up to my normal standard of quality. I apologize for that. But the content is so good when talking to Ron, uh, somebody who's got a true first-gen hunter story, by the way. A guy who uh, has really had to figure it out a lot on his own and with the help of good friends. Uh, but... It's a great story. Now, I do also want to say this. Because this is the First Gen Hunter podcast, and the whole point here is to help other people who are getting into hunting find success, and I know the whole theme of this episode is going to be upland bird hunting, specifically pheasant hunting is kind of what I'm... I The reason I scheduled this this uh, episode for this week. So the that being said... I know a lot of you guys are still going to be out there sitting in a tree stand and uh, hoping for some whitetail success. So I have not hunted this time of year hardly at all. I've done a lot of like early to mid-October hunting. I've done a fair bit of November hunting, but this Halloween time of year, you can probably hear all my kids talking in the background. It's busy. It's trick-or-treating time. It's getting the getting the costumes ready to go and all that stuff so i don't get out there but i do know one guy who likes to hunt this time of year um and that is mr garrett fike a multiple time guest on the podcast so he's going to come in just for a few minutes here and he's going to give us a rundown on how he would hunt this weekend right before halloween if he were able to get into a tree hey kent thanks again for having me on again happy to be here so my plan for the next few nights and on into this into this weekend is I'm still going to be poking around the edges, hunting over primarily food sources where does are going to be entering in the evenings. I may hunt a morning or two this weekend, uh, but I'm still focused mostly on those evening sits. And like I said, I want to be in close to where the does are going to be. At this point in the year, there shouldn't be any does that are coming into heat quite yet, but they are close, and these bucks are wanting to keep uh, very close tabs on them. So they're, they like to be in and around where those does are at, checking them out, seeing, uh, getting a sense for how close they are to coming into estrus, because that's going to be here in the next you know, week. Uh, the first ones will be starting to come in. So if you can get in around where the does are at, that's going to be key for this, for this weekend and here over the next few days and even uh, I would say the next week so downwind side of some uh, some some food sources if you have that on your property and I think that's a good place good place to be but I wouldn't get too aggressive yet I haven't found that this is a good time of year to really dive in deep and, and hunt bedding or anything like that uh, 
keep playing it safe for the next few days. It's We're really close, and it can be very tempting to really go full out and uh, get into some of your best stands. But I think the best is definitely yet to come. Save that for another uh, week or 10 days and uh, continue kind of focusing on the edges and try to take advantage of hanging out and around where the does are going to be. Perfect. So there you have it. You got it from the expert, the the big buck slayer himself, Mr. Garrett Fike. And by the way, a little preview here. Uh, I'm getting Garrett and Jake on a podcast here soon to talk about their North Dakota hunt that they did this year. I like to call him Gary. Old Gary here has got the monkey off his back already this year. He's already got a buck tagged out in uh, North Dakota, a little spoiler alert, but uh, that doesn't slow him down at all. He's you thinking you're going to go for a two-buck year this year? Uh, Gary, in Illinois, we're talking. So I guess it could be a three-buck year. You know, I, uh, I'm i feeling pretty good about this year, and I'm confident every year. My wife, she always gives me a hard time because I'll, I'll tell her before I leave. I said, you know, I think I feel like this could be it. I feel like this could be, uh, you know, a good sit or just a good year in general. And I think as, as hunters, uh, you have to have that optimism. Otherwise, you wouldn't you wouldn't go out and, and sit through the cold and uh, the rain or you know whatever the the tough conditions are and spend all the time we do hunting. You have to have that that high level of optimism. But to answer your question, I do think this could be I think this could be a two buck year here in Illinois. I've got ones running around and uh, I feel like I put in the hard work here in the off season to be prepared and. I like my chances. We're, we're right on the edge of uh, the best time of the year here and, and uh, feeling good about it. There you go. So there's your advice for this upcoming weekend. Uh, expect it to be good, but don't don't hunt it like it's too good, if that makes sense. Don't get in there like it is the rut because it's not the rut yet. But there should be a better chance than there was maybe a few weeks ago of catching a buck on his feet uh, during shooting hours. Well, thanks, Garrett, for coming on to the show. And before I jump into playing this episode here for you, make sure you check out the presenting sponsor, Spartan Forge. You know the normal conversation. There really isn't a better tool out there for helping you get that intel you need to know what deer behavior is going to look like based on the conditions in your neck of the woods. Get Spartan Forge going. Get the app go ahead and start using it and make your deer hunting situation better all right let's go ahead and roll it episode number 98 of the first gen hunter podcast thank you so much for tuning in We're back here on the First Gen Hunter podcast, and I have a guy that I have always been entertained by and educated by, uh, Mr. Ron Bame of the Hunting Dog Podcast. And uh, you may have seen Ron around. He's he's uh, really uh, gotten quite the reputation in the hunting dog world. You see his name uh, pop up on different podcasts, uh, probably most notably over there at uh, Meat Eater, which is uh, a great place to be, a place where uh, uh, I think really a lot of the best content that comes out that, and and honestly, Ron, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this. I think over the last five years or so where meat eater has really you know turned into the for lack of a better term 
term here, the machine that it has become. Mm-hmm. I think the average hunter has become so much more, um, I don't know, knowledgeable, thoughtful, maybe thoughtful is a better word about what they're doing. You know, guys that are tuning into that. I think there's just been a huge influence through that. And, uh, then, you know, you see guys like, uh, you've been involved with that just adds to that. And I think that the hunting community is better for it. But, um, about five or six years ago, my father-in-law sent me this interesting article that he came across. And and for the life of me, I cannot find the article. Um, it, it was, I think it was maybe put out through wide open spaces, which was a really, uh, I don't know, I guess you'd say popular, well-circulated hunting blog at that time. And the article was about how new hunters, such as myself, a first-generation hunter, how they were getting into hunting via their dogs. Their dogs were uh, providing the uh, motivation to, to pick up hunting. You know, people would go and they would they'd find a dog breed that they wanted to hunt with, and they would... Uh, uh, you know, go purchase the dog, adopt the dog, whatever. And, uh, they, you know, start thinking, you know, this thing here, it's meant to hunt. I don't know how to hunt. And, uh, I think it'd be a shame to own a hunting dog and never hunt with them. And, uh, so the, what this article was, was getting at was how the number of hunters through that through that, uh, I guess you'd say extension of their dog were picking up hunting. And I was one of those people, which was so cool to be reading that, you know, sometimes you, you hear like, you know, 80% of people do X, Y, and Z and you're like, holy cow, I'm one of the 80%. I do that exact thing. And that's how, that's how it felt when I read that article. It's like, that's me. I, uh, I bought a, uh, Brittany and I, I'd be curious to get your uh, opinion on Brittany's at some point uh ron because I've, I've heard you talk about them a little bit on your podcast and uh, uh my wife my wife and i we were looking at getting a dog and we weren't sure what um what breed to get we knew that um we wanted something that was you know easily trainable something that was um uh, you know, not going to, uh, take up a ton of space, not be too high strung, you know, so that it would still be a good family dog, but, but definitely wanted that strong hunting instinct. So we kind of like just went through the old AKC.org, whatever it is for American Kennel Club, and all the, the breed profiles. And, uh, we landed on, uh, what used to be termed the Britney Spaniel. Now everyone just calls them Britneys, of course. And uh, sure enough, there was a guy who was, uh, you know, a few hours away, uh, just uh, had a litter uh, come due to be uh, uh, sold. And uh, we went, picked out a puppy, and uh, old Theo's been my hunting buddy ever since. And he was the first one to, to take me hunting, you might say. But I really think that dogs and people are are uh, such an important symbiotic relationship an example and one of the few that we have as humans that would be an example of so i used to be a biology teacher uh but this would be an example of a mutualistic symbiotic relationship i scratch your back you scratch mine um which is weird to say when you're uh, on a skype call with somebody it looks like you're both sitting in a concrete hot tub but yeah but uh is- this uh, <laughs> 
Here you go again. Let me scratch back. You feel that? We should explain to people that Kent set me up on this Skype call, and it took us 20 minutes to get his Microsoft to acknowledge his existence. And the backdrop shows yes. both of us from about the chest up in some kind of a scenic what would be it's like, a, it's like a Roman bath or something. Yeah, it looks like we're in a Roman bath. We're both clothed. <laughs> it's it's slightly hard to concentrate, but I'm gonna leave the audio or the video on with the audio. Uh, but go ahead. I had a, I had a divulge. we had a we had to straighten that out for your listeners because this is the by far the strangest audio video call I've ever done. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I really don't understand why it's doing it either. I've never had to do this, but before I lose track of your question, I do want to comment on what you said. You're right. It's, yeah. Uh, 40 years ago, I'm not saying it never happened, but nobody bought the dog and started hunting. It was always you went hunting with someone who had a dog, or in my case, with my mm. friend growing up in Illinois, we hunted with no dog until I talked to one of my friends into buying a dog, you know, that we, we thought was going to be a hunting dog. Turned out it wasn't. But right. Yeah, it was. It's very common. The journey these days is a whole lot of people get the dog to learn to hunt. So they're basically learning together or they had the dog and they never hunted it. But it was, let's say, a German Shorthair or a Brittany or Weimaraner. And now they're like, I got to get another dog because I didn't get that dog hunting. So, yeah, the journey has been really different. And, yeah, you're not alone whatsoever. Um I don't want to say you're the norm, but I bet you're as much as the norm is not with getting the dog yeah. to, to get you going. Um, and That's you said later on, say it. later on, you you know what? I would do one thing. My little cocker spaniel keeps picking up her bowl. I don't know if you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's that's a it's stainless steel. That's a that's dinging it. So you entertain that's all right. about sixty seconds. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah, so I, I like what uh I like the way you said that. You know, it might not be the norm, but it's uh the same as not the norm, or or how every word of that. But I got I got what you were saying. Where um we. <laughs> new hunters come into it for so many different reasons and uh you know dog ownership has has kind of hit the i don't know the the front lines of of media you know people have always owned dogs but like you watch a movie from you know 60 years ago and the the character the characterization of the dog was this thing that was in the background you know uh somebody throw a table scrap to it that type of thing it was there for almost some kind of like uh maybe comedic relief or you know the the uh moment or whatever for for uh the the film now you see like all these kids movies i got little kids i have three little kids run um five and under and uh uh, there's so many kid movies that feature dogs and, uh, the dog is the hero. And so I think there's almost been this change in how, uh, uh, you know, society views dogs. And so I think it makes sense that people kind of build their life around a dog because that's, I don't know, that's kind of where it seems people's interests are. And so then when you take that into hunting, it makes a lot of sense that it ends up being that way. But 
The uh, the other question I have for you, Ron, what do you th- what is your honest to goodness feeling on uh, Britney's as a uh, bird dog? Have you ever owned one? I've never owned one. Uh, I've hunted. I've hunted behind one. I've judged quite a few of them in my career of judging at NAVDA. I've al- I've always been mm-hmm. impressed with the ones that I've seen come through the training. Um, mm-hmm. But there's another, I want to say, handful that I was not impressed by. Now, that could just sure. be from where they got them from. Per- personally, there's one thing that you can count on with a Brittany, and this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's more true than not, is if there's a, a cow patty, a cow pie, a, a something to roll in, a mud puddle, for some reason, <laughs> that, that breed of dog will stop whatever it's doing to roll on. Now, I mean, believe me, I've had my wire yep. hairs and other dogs find a dead carcass or a dead deer, you know, and try to get, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I swear that Brittany's be like, you know, I'm going to go hunting. I wonder if there's a chance there's something really stinky that I can roll in. It's almost like they're, <laughs> they're that's a, very true. <laughs> and, uh, and I've always said tongue in cheek that they, some of them kind of r- remind me of pickpockets, you know, they're, mm, they're yes. about their demeanor and their eyes, and they just, they look a little sneaky. But uh, I, I think they're fine bird dogs. I think they've they've got a very steep history in, in the upland world. I think they just kind of lost mm-hmm. popularity. I think they've always held X amount of popularity, but like let's say 20, 30 years ago, there was just a lot more of them. So when you don't mm-hmm. get a lot of them anymore. Um, you know, I, personally, the coat is what probably keeps me away from that. Uh, small monster landers and English setters It's just a lot more maintenance for the mm. coat. Um, but yeah. I've had people, I've had people write me and they literally list the three breeds. Like they're saying, Hey, Ron, I'm thinking of this, 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 and this. And I says, Oh, apparently you like coat maintenance. You know, they'll list a Brittany a monster, <laughs> and a and a setter, I'm like, well, you want to do some grooming at the end of the day, don't you? So, uh, yeah, I don't, I've never, uh, I've never had one that I didn't like, but I've never personally wanted to own one. And, uh, sure. And I'll tell you the French Brittany, which is really, you know, it's a Brittany. It's just that registry was kind of in France for a long time. Now they're pretty much mainstream here. The last three I saw in their NAVD utility test were just remarkable. Um, and, I mean, it's still a Brittany. It just happens to be, you know, basically tricolor Brittany. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah, no one's going to like that comment who has a French Brittany. But, um, yeah, and I just haven't seen a lot, of, a lot of the standard Brittany's. I mean, I'll bet you in the last five years, six years, I haven't seen one. Um but I interviewed a, a lady that's been breeding them for years, decades out in Montana. And, you know, mm-hmm. she can't, she can't get enough of them. And uh, so, yeah, it's probably a little underrated. And uh, I want to ask you the breeder that had the dogs, was he there to help support you a little bit? Was he any kind of a mentor? Or did you just get the dog and, and break ties with them? Yeah, that's a, you know, he, he was, he was pretty, pretty supportive. The problem was, since I hadn't hunted yet, I didn't know what I, I didn't know. You know what I mean? And so he kind of, he kind of, well, he did give me, he went to his freezer, grabbed a, 
a pheasant wing that he'd saved from the year before and, you know, gave that to me to start doing some scent recognition with the dog. And, and, uh, um, he, he told me that, uh, both the sire and the dam were, you know, hunters and, and, uh, that, that, uh, he should have a, you know, a strong hunting instinct because of that. And, uh, he, you know, he told me some stories about taking, taking the dam hunting, you know, out, I don't know if it was out of state or a ways away from where he was living anyways and how she did great even, you know, on the road and everything. So if you work with this dog, it's going to pay off, you know? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, which was huge because when, when you don't know what you don't know, then any little inkling of hope that, if you put some time into something that it's, there's right. going to be return on investment. Like that's, you know, that's huge. So yeah, I, I got to work with him though pretty quick and uh, it, it definitely paid off. Now I love what you said about the pickpocket and the rolling thing. Uh, so old Theo, he's uh, seven and a half now. So he's definitely, you know, he's kind of teetering on that, you know, being in his prime, but, kind of becoming a senior dog a little bit in some ways you know last year he developed some kind of, i don't know if he's got a little bit of arthritis or something in one of his his uh uh front legs and uh he uh kind of fell in a hole while we were hunting and he, he yiped and then but he, you know of course how gun dogs are just keeps hunting like nothing ever happened and then later that night he could hardly walk on on the leg and so i noticed he kind of favors that now a little bit and, uh, um, he, he though has maintained those bad habits that you talked about, uh, throughout his entire life, ever since he was a puppy, even to now, you know, just last week, um, I let him out, uh, I aired him out a little bit and he, he, uh, it took a little bit longer for him to get back and like, where's Theo, you know, he comes back and he's just from his ear all the way down to his hind leg. He's, he's like found a dead something, you know, dead coon or something that he rolled it. It was awful. And, uh, he is the world's biggest pickpocket for sure. He, uh, I've never seen any kind of creature under the sun. So obsessed with taking in calories than is Theo. I mean, he would literally eat until he would puke, and then he'd be like, great, I just threw up, now I could eat some more. I got room for... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, right, right. He would... He would, uh, you know how cows and stuff founder? He would definitely founder if he was a cow. He would die from foundering. But, um... So we put him on a diet because he gets fat because of that. And with three little kids... That is, that is so hard because they, you know, they like half eat a sandwich and then run off and go play with something and, uh, they leave it totally vulnerable to, to Theo. And so he'll hop up there, snag that thing. And, uh, you know, it's like he finds a way to get what he wants. And, uh, I always say that if he was ever just like cut loose into the wild, he'd find a way to survive because, He's it's just in his little pickpocket mentality. You know, he's a little scrapper where he just he he'll uh, he'll come up with whatever he wants, and mm-hmm. and he's not he's not about to ask for permission either. So yeah. he's a pretty sneaky sneaky dog. But all that being said, for a guy who knew nothing about uh, gun dogs, I've had a lot of success hunting behind him simply because um, I mean, yeah, definitely did quite a bit of training with him, but. 
I give more credit to the fact of, like you were saying, that historically good bloodline of of uh, hunting instinct that comes with Britneys, and and uh, we've had a lot of fun, you know. So <clears throat> your description was was accurate. I have a good story for you, Ron. Um, a good friend of mine, he uh, unfortunately he has a pretty advanced uh, MS now, and he doesn't he's not able to get out and hunt, but he always ran uh, bird dogs. Uh, he had a Brittany, and then I think he mostly ran GSPs after that. But he he had all kinds of the trouble with his Brittany, and uh, he said one time he had, they had people over at their house or something. They didn't want the dog out, so they shut him in a room in the house. And uh, he had a whole stack of books sitting on a table in that house, and that that dog that Brittany destroyed only one book in that stack of books. And that book was How to Train and Hunt the Brittany Spaniel. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, there you go. there's my full opinion yep. of tales. No, that, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, but no, I, you, you, I had that problem with dogs, you know, that, I mean, you do almost wonder, like, seriously, out of all the things you had to grab and destroy, it had to be that, you know, could be a hundred right. other things. No, yeah, that it 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 might be, eh, it might be it might be karma, but it's probably just behavior. Yep. And I'll guarantee yep. you, his dad probably ate books too. Yep, yep, yeah. I I think they they hold on to those bad habits just like people do, right? You know, we're we're probably predisposed to the same things that that get handed down to us, you know. But uh, that's that's also what makes it fun too, you know. We all, all the time, not just within bird hunters and or, or dog handlers, are do we complain about the challenges that we encounter? But if you were to take those challenges out of it, we wouldn't like it. You know what I mean? We the those challenges are what keeps us coming back. If everything was so easy and predictable, we would uh, we'd give up on it long ago and probably you know spend our days watching football or or uh, playing golf or <laughs> something like that that doesn't matter that's a scary thought but you're right so you're right extent i mean oh, yeah thing is a, a lifelong kind of a journey but you know you can get pretty proficient at it but then you still always got the variables mm-hmm. whether you got the dog you got the bird it could be you could be pretty proficient um but there's no mm-hmm. guarantee, you know, you can go bowling and I guarantee those pins are going to set themselves back up and you're going to get another shot at all 10 of them with your bowling ball. And the, uh, no matter, how right. bad, no matter how bad you golf, you can finish all 18 holes, you know, but, uh, yeah, hunting yep. is something that, yeah, there's always, there's always a little something to learn. And the, the biggest thing for me and always has been is the social aspect of it. You know, I've people always, yeah. ask, they'll say, you know, that I, I see it written time and time. I see it on Instagram. Like if it wasn't for my dog, I wouldn't hunt. And I said, if it wasn't for my friends, I wouldn't have dogs to go hunting with mm. You know, me. Sure. Hunting, now I know you're a big game hunter as well. I think you're probably, uh, that's more your wheelhouse, I guess, or, or maybe it's not, but I, you know, I've right. listened to a few episodes of yours. Oh, you're right. You're right. For sure. And, uh, so yeah. being a deer hunter, you can only be social when you're not hunting. <laughs> you can't be walking yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> a cigar, waiting, waiting yeah. for your dog to go on point to go deer hunting. So 
Yeah, no, that that my whole crux has always been the social aspect of of hunting. I, I like that. I think um, you know, I, I definitely want to take the conversation there where we talk about. I almost, uh, I, I guess, the term I think of for it is the white collar side of of uh, gun dogs. You know, field trials, the the shows, and 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 so forth. And and really, you can you can take that. You know, as far as anybody wanted to, they could they can dive into that world. But so much of the foundation for anything in that is going to be the social side of it. And I think that it's cool how how the gun dog community has created that and only expanded on, on that through time and and uh, how much tradition is mixed in with that, too. You know, you just you don't see too many other things like, like that where you can mix hunting with uh, uh you know, really this formalized society type feel, uh, that, that comes with that. So, yeah, I think that that's well said. Now I, I did want to ask you, Ron, um, how did you first get into, uh, hunting with, you know, being, being a gun dog guy? I mean, was it something, uh, you kind of talked about a little, little bit that, you, you know, it used to be, you knew a guy, you'd go hunt with him who, who had the dog and you'd have fun, but like, Clearly, you're wired for what you're doing. I mean, it's like that—that's what makes you you is is getting into this. Where did that come from? Did you have like a mentor or something like that growing up that you know kind of introduced you to it, or did you just kind of start you know going from step A to step B and so on and so forth? And here you are. Well, yeah, the the journey is not. Yeah, I did not have a mentor, especially in the dog world. Um, I grew up. I grew up in the city limits of Chicago, but I was always out walking the railroad tracks with a bow and arrow, you know, trying to shoot a rabbit legally or illegal. We didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And my best friend. Sure. Uh, we later on, uh, a friend of mine's dad uh, got me to go to a trap trap range with him. And then I learned a little bit about okay. you know, handling a shotgun. And then I got a bunch of my, I, I was always like the Johnny Appleseed of my group of friends. So I, mm-hmm. I, but as far as a mentor goes, I never really had one. It was just, you know, reading a magazine article and the real, the real kickoff for it was, you know, we had been shooting shotguns for a couple of years as teenagers. Um, and one of the guys that we met at one of these state run programs that Illinois had not too many hours from our house. He saw that we came back and you know, we'd go there without dogs. We, you know, they were released birds by the state a uh, couple times a week. And, you know, we just had fun trying to get scratched down a bird. And he asked us if he could take us out because he had shot his limit of birds per state regulations. But there's no state regulation sure. in his dog could find. And I remember he had a permission <laughs> and he took us out, all of us out after lunch. I think we all maybe had one bird out of the two bird limit. And uh, so he took us out with his short hair. And of course, this was not a challenging hunt. It, you know, with a dog, a good hunting dog on a, it, whether you call it a preserve or release or whatever you want to call it, the dog right. was able to round up some more birds for us in pretty quick order and point them and retrieve them. And that was probably my, my kickoff point when I saw that happen. Like I saw it on, well, there was not even any VHS tapes. And I think the only time I would have saw it on television would have been, you know, American Sportsman. 
And it was probably Bing Crosby hunting in South Dakota with a lab. So, yeah, I, I think the only thing I think is that one fella that said, hey, hey, guys, you want to go out and shoot some more birds? And uh, I saw that. And then it became like an obsession, you know, and I literally talked to my buddy who I was I was living at his place. And I said, we got to get a dog. And he's, I don't want a dog. I said, no, we got to get a dog. And we went to the pound. Back to what we called it back in the day, the dog pound. Oh, yeah. Yep. And we we grabbed the first dog that was black with a tail, assuming it was a Labrador, because <laughs> it said Lab Mix. <laughs> I mean, of course it was a Lab Mix, but we don't know what it was mixed with, you know. And uh, <laughs> that, that, dog, that, that dog didn't pan out, but he did become a lifelong friend of Frank's. Um, oh, that's yeah. good, at least. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, Frank came out, you know, he came out the winner. He, he got himself a nice house dog that was probably a 30-pound black. I don't know what it was, but it was it was black, you know, called it Midnight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, that that's it started with some, you know, just trompsing around as a kid, uh, learning to use a shotgun. Uh, my dad did not. The only gun I got from my dad was when my grandma died, we cleaned out her attic, and there was a crate from Japan. And it was dressed huh. in my dad, and inside of it were a couple of samurai swords and an Arasaka rifle that he had wow. shipped. He had shipped them home. I don't know if it was legal or illegally, but he shipped them home to his mom's address on Peoria Street in Chicago, and that crate was up in that attic, and he had forgot all about it. And uh, <laughs> I was probably. 13 or 14 so i, I was oh, the only, oh man i was the only kid in chicago running around with a, an arasaka rifle with no ammunition and two samurai swords so <laughs> and that, 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 yeah that's like a gold that's a gold mine right there to a 14 oh, yeah. year old popping the lid off of that. Over you, hey you want you want to see what i got up in my room and that might have started my here <laughs> with with martial art because that's probably the only other thing that i've dedicated most of my spare time to besides hunting is, is martial arts. So who knows where it's really? going. Yeah. Yep. That, yeah. That's cool. I didn't know. I did not know that. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's uh, uh that's cool. You got a, definitely a first gen hunter story for yourself there too, you know, and, and uh, I've talked about this before where, and I, I kind of made reference to it for you, for you yourself, where you're just kind of wired for, for uh, what it is that you're doing with, with a, uh, gun dogs and and uh i think every person is wired for something but i think more people could be connected to hunting than they realize you know uh i once heard donnie vincent uh he, he, well he's got that super uh, uh well circulated video titled who we are it's on youtube it's been out for i don't know maybe five years or whatever and 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 I heard the story behind it once in an interview that he did. I think it was. I think he was shooting a series maybe for uh, National Geographic or something like that. And uh, he was explaining why uh, he feels, you know, the the need to hunt and how, you know, we all come from ancestors. The reason that we exist today is because our ancestors were able to hunt yeah. and uh, were able to get food. And so I think, you know, if people, if people give hunting a, a shot, you know, it doesn't have to be the same, the same thing for every person by any means. I think they'll all find some bit of a connection there that, uh, you know, starts 
pulling you along a little bit and and getting you into it a little bit deeper all the time but uh yeah that's that's a, that's a really cool story you know something else i wanted to ask you about ronnie and i know we're we're uh hitting kind of uh the 30 minute mark here but um through your time uh you know i, I think it's awesome you grew up in illinois i grew up in illinois as well i live in iowa now but uh, i was over on the the quad city side of the state um which was you know that's a that that's an outdoorsman's paradise around there there's enough countryside around the quad cities to yeah. get out and have a lot of fun but um through time you know the habitat for upland birds has i mean it's it's gone backwards i mean it really has when we we look yeah. at um when we look at how many upland bird species are hurting right now, it's, I mean, it's, it's scary. It really is. And, and it's almost like people just don't care. Like if all of a sudden we said, you know what, we elk are really hurting. Um, uh, I don't know if you, you know, Ted cook from, uh, um, North American grouse partnership, uh, he's a president out there, a real sharp guy. He wrote a article, I don't know, maybe three months ago, four months ago about the lesser prairie chicken being on the verge of being uh, listed as endangered. And, uh, he, the, I actually interviewed Ted for another podcast I do for my job, but, um, we had this conversation where upland birds just kind of don't get the attention that a lot out of the other charismatic species do you know if we were to say man elk are going to be listed as endangered or deer are going to be listed as endangered or black bears or whatever or moose you know people would that'd get people's attention but the lesser prairie chicken you know uh the sage grouse even we could look down we could we could go down and look at the south and look at the look at what has happened to bob white quail in the south you know of course, you know, the prairie chickens that were around here in the Midwest, too, and, and even pheasants. You know, my own state now, Iowa, was once, not that long ago, 25 years ago, was a major destination state for pheasant hunting. And, I mean, it's still up there, but it's nowhere near what it once was. Yeah. You know, have you kind of watched that happen through your career as a as a gun dog guy, I mean, do you remember some of the good days? And now when you look at that scene now, I mean, is it alarming to you or am I like, uh, you know, do I need to tap the brakes here a little bit and look at, look at things a little differently? No, I, I think my biggest <clears throat> problem, I've said this on other podcasts, especially when people interview me, um, I went through probably 20 years of just showing up to hunt and didn't pay attention to the, the habitat. And, you know, those banquets I'd go to from DU or Rough Grouse Society, the biologists would come on and talk and everybody would keep talking at the banquet. I always, and then for some reason, I think it's once you have kids, my kids are all grown, but there's that point where you start becoming that hunter conservationist. So um, I've kind of become that but I can't say I noticed a change because I've always I've always found the places to go, but I'm fully aware of that 
there's less and less places to go. Yeah. And I think you're right to a point, you know, it's so funny that the one bird that gets the biggest support in, in the uplands is the pheasant. And it's, you know, it's non-native where you could almost see that bird being like, if people said, Hey, there's no more ringnecks. Well, that's like saying, Hey, there's no more street pigeons, right? They, mm-hmm. they yeah. weren't here. They weren't here 400 years ago. I guess they're not here anymore, but an organization like EF, <laughs> you know, they put such a good campaign out and they do so much work with habitat and farmers and, and access. And so is Quail Forever and, and, and Rough Grouse Society. I, I think, I think the advocacy is there now. And I think that's the one thing that all hunters need to do, whatever your passion is, like to be passionate across the board. Um, yeah. I believe me, I wish I was a deer hunter. Because you said <laughs> said something that struck me. You said, you know, habitat's disappearing where you used to see pheasants in Iowa. But there is no lack of deer. For That's some, right. That's when right. We, when we manipulate the landscape, the deer just come on like gangbusters, man. You know? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they've thrived. Well, yeah, what, they, what, what's, the famous, what's the famous saying that people always use? There's more. I think it's there's more deer now than there was when Columbus set foot. In the Americas, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and you know we got less and less game birds for sure. Uh, but I, I think, I think the uh, the overall outlook. I think people are doing enough to try to. It, I think the finger is at least in the leak in the dam. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see it going. I really don't see it going backwards. But it does in little teeny areas, you know. Um, like you're never going to see, I, I interviewed Ben Williams one time when my first years of podcasting and I was so excited because he's kind of one of the gurus of, of, you know, Huns and, and sharp tail grouse. Hunting. Sure. And, and he's from Illinois okay. and he will tell you that when he was a boy in Northern Illinois, he not only shot pheasants, you know, along the railroad tracks, but he was shooting Hungarian partridge. Wow. Now you could still probably get, some pheasants to move in in certain areas as long as they can, you know, get to it. But we're right. never going to be Hungarian partridge back in, in Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's kind of a bird that exists well around agriculture, but needs a little, you know, a little specificity for, you know, winter cover and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, so we've lost it in a lot of spots, but I think the spots that we have it, I think it's still pretty strong. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't like being a doomsayer. I'm, I, I feel pretty positive about it. And the one thing I'll say, too, is, you know, you, you mentioned early on about uh, meat eater. Um, yeah. one of the, I think one of the things that's if there was a I don't want to say there was bad things. One of the good things about it is they have probably gotten a lot of people to be more advocates than or, or yeah. to be is equally strong an advocate as they are a hunter, as opposed to like when I started, I was just a hunter. I right. was, I wasn't checking the box for an extra dollar for habitat. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to banquets. The, I was just, you know, first probably 15 years. I, I just wanted to go out and hunt. Right. You know, luckily I had moved to Michigan and that was, there was, you know, we got pl- plenty of places to go chase grouse and woodcock. Um, right. But, got quite a few wild pheasants right here in in uh muskegon county and uh and uh ottawa county mm-hmm. and 
those birds are gone. Yeah. Uh, and, but yeah, overall, no, I, I think, I think it's, I think the, the message would be if you're going to get into hunting, if you're going to be a, a, what do you call it? Next generation, first generation hunter mm-hmm. to pay attention to advocacy and do what you can. And I, I don't mean picking up the litter and closing the gates. That's stuff we should always do. Right. Yeah. I mean, get involved with an organization or a club and, you know, we can all waste a little money here and there. If I, if, if, if the money I spent on beer would have been put toward habitat, we'd probably have wild birds everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's, that's a great point. You know, we, we can come up with uh, the time and money if we really value what it is that we're, mm-hmm. we're uh, looking at, you know, that's, that's what we do for pretty much everything else in our lives. That's yeah, that's, that's well said for sure. Yeah, you know, I I really hope that, and I think there is, I think there's an undertow that's pulling in, um, not just in the hunting community, but I think in the the conservation community, which is a much broader scope. You know, you got people, you got, you know, guys like you and me who are very strong advocates for hunting and you got people who are 100% against hunting that are part of the conserv- the greater conservation scope which is you know we we could debate with them all day long but but uh, I think people are getting more aware of the need to protect the type of habitat that supports upland bird species um uh, the American Grasslands Act, I believe, is a couple of uh, uh, congressional uh, sponsors for it now. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bipartisan uh, deal yet, but hopefully we'll get there. Um, there's, uh, you know, well, we, we, of course, have been enjoying the CRP program for the last 30 some years or whatever, which has been great. Um, and I think people are really starting to get aware of, uh, the, the need that, uh, pollinator species have the need of support there that, uh, once again, goes hand in hand with those, those, uh, game bird species and, and pheasants forever has done a wonderful job of, of running their pollinator week and, and, uh, you know, preaching the need for more habitat and, and uh, you want to talk about a group of people that uses their money wisely. Um, uh, I, with my so my other job is I work for a company called Hoxie Native Seeds, and we grow prairie grass and prairie flowers, and and then sell the seed. And and you know a lot of it goes to farmers for their CRP acres, but it's also uh, for you know people wanting backyard prairie plots and so forth and we we do a podcast with them called the prairie farm podcast and we went up to uh pheasants forever headquarters and met with bob st pierre and howard vincent and uh we were we were talking about with them it's like you go to that facility and it's there's there's nothing special about it it's like a uh, warehouse with a bunch of cubicles in it and uh you know howard's been the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever for like 25 plus years, I think, something like 20, 25 years. And he's re- he's retiring this year. And we were, we were going to record the podcast in his office. And my coworker's like, uh, 
would it be okay if we, you know, moved your, rotated your desk in this way so that way we can, you know, uh, have the, the video camera set up here to get the visual side of the podcast and all that. He's like, actually, we can't move my desk because uh, it's propped up on this corner because uh, it's been broken for how many years? And it's like, it shows you when they say, you know, what is it? I can't remember, 90 cents of every dollar. I don't even want to say that because I might I might be under shooting him there. But almost every bit that is donated and poured into Pheasants Forever goes straight back into um, habitat work and, and promoting hunting and, and uh, you know, not only helping pheasants, but quail and, and all the other species that come in with that bundle, you know, that, that are supported by that. So I'm hopeful, man. I, I really think that, uh, you know, 50 years from now, if we were having this conversation in the uh, virtual hot tub here, the Roman bat, I think I figured out what it is, by the way, Ron, I think, uh, it's called together mode. It says together mode has been enabled for this call. So it must be the default. The default Roman bath here, but uh, and somehow I disappeared from the bath. I must have I must have evaporated. But uh, uh, man, today has been the day of uh, of uh, technical glitches. But uh, point being, fifty years from now, if we were, we were having this conversation, I think it would look totally different. You know, I think uh, I think we would be seeing some of these species in greater numbers, and and. Uh, you know, hopefully better hunting for the generations that come after us. And, um, you know, hopefully people can get reconnected to the land in that way through, through hunting and, and, uh, you know, being a consumptive user for lack of a better term of, of the land. So, uh, with that, with that being said, um, what dogs are you running now? Um, I think you kind of have several breeds that you're you're hunting behind and, and training. But uh, uh, you know, let's maybe let's put it this way: what what dogs do you do you currently handle? And uh, if you were to go on your dream, like two week long rooster tour, or you know, a grouse tour, or, or whatever. Who are you bringing with you? Like, which dogs? Well, you know, I end up, I've got, my my history goes, starts with German short hairs, and I had a couple of dandy ones. Well, I had one really dandy one. Um, then I, I got into German wire hairs on a hunting trip. I, I read a gun dog magazine, and there was an article in there, or a little ad in the back. I read an article about wire hairs, and then I had to have one of them. But for the last... Oh, I don't know, decade and a half. I've had Bracco Italianos. Okay. They're they're okay dogs. They're I had one I had one outstanding one, I would say. And uh I've got a couple of females now that are okay. It's again, it's you're talking about a breed that's you know, esoteric. And I guess older what I've looked for in dogs is dogs with high cooperation and you can find that in all the popular breeds, but I think people have kind of messed things up with a little too much desire. So mm-hmm. then I decided to get into a couple of years ago. Now I, I got some, or a year and a half ago, I found a wire haired Vigila breeder and I met that breed a few years before that very cooperative breed of dog with, with some good talent 
Um, so that's what I'm hunting now. Uh, a couple of Brocco females, a, a wire-haired Vigila. And then I had to jump on the Cocker Spaniel bandwagon three years ago, and that's another okay. one. Okay. Um, but that being said, I, I've taken them. Like my last trip to North Dakota, I took them all with me. Uh, sure. One of, my, one of my females doesn't really hunt. Uh, the other one hunts for herself. <laughs> but retriever. <laughs> uh, Tagus has uh, has shown that he's growing, and, and he's probably going to be my, my go-to dog. And my little Cocker Spaniel is just learning my second one now is learning the ropes but uh the second part of your question was where would i go and who would i go with was that what it was i, I didn't like that yeah yeah so you kind of answered the who you'd go with as far as your uh your dogs are concerned you know you you, you yeah. take them all which is cool i like that and uh that's a lot of work too by the way i mean oh. when you're tra- traveling with dogs i think they're almost more work than kids you know you mm-hmm. gotta <laughs> you can't just drag them into the to the hotel room and and uh you know toss them on the bed and say, go to sleep. You gotta, you gotta air them out. You gotta, you yeah. gotta give, you know, feed them in their kennels and everything else. So that's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, but yeah, I've traveled probably with five at the most and normally three or four. Um, but as far as like where I would go and who I'd go with, I, I've got like a kind of a string of friends over the years that I'll always, like I said, in the beginning, I didn't have a mentor. I was always the one organizing these things. Mm-hmm. I was always like, "Hey guys, you want to try going here? Hey guys, you want?" And they're like, "Okay, Ron's got a dog, uh, we'll, or <laughs> several dogs." And I was always, and still am, the facilitator. When I get invited somewhere to go with somebody else, I'm like, "Oh, thank you, thank you." <laughs> I can leave my dogs at home. My wife will feed them, and I can. I don't have to do anything, but. Uh, when I, when I go somewhere, I, I like to go to new places. I mm-hmm. like every year I go to at least one new state or place I haven't hunted before. Sure. And I drag at least one or two of my old friends with me. Oh, uh, nice. That way, you know, if the hunting's no good, the conversation's always good. Yeah. Uh, and this past year, there was a young couple that lives not too far from me that got involved with training their dogs through our NAVDA chapter and we've become friends and they came out, uh, you know, they came out to North Dakota with us and we, we had a ball. Um, and we kind of relied on their younger legs to scout a little bit for us. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a favorite place to go or a favorite bird to hunt. As long as it's with somebody I know or somebody I'm, I'm trying to think there's a, I, I know I came up with this and I'll, I'll probably I'll probably jack it up, but uh, <laughs> there's, oh, well, you know what? I'll go back to it. I got to find that quote. I did that quote. In fact, you keep talking and I'm going to look this quote up. Okay. Yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll use it at the end to wrap it up with because it's really my mantra. And uh, it's actually, I'm surprised. I'm surprised no one stole it yet. Well, but, yeah, just, just, uh, Make sure you always attach your name to it, so that way at least people will know when they hear it. But yeah, that's that's such a critical part of all things. You know, I call it. Uh, I don't. Yeah, here I go stealing somebody else's quote. Somebody uh, used this term the other day. I don't remember who it was, but they called it windshield time when you're uh, with the with your hunting buddies or whoever. Uh, my brother. So we grew up. You know, neither of us got to hunt growing up, and and. Uh, we, uh, you know, 
Well, we did everything else. We fished, we kayaked and backpacked and stuff like that. But uh, we we didn't hunt. And when we go hunting together now, I mean, yeah, sure. The the objective is to, you know, fill the game bag, fill a tag or whatever. Like that's that's why you're there. But man, it's the the just getting to hang out with my younger brother again, you know, after it's been, you know, a few months or something like that. And, and it just makes the whole, the whole experience that much more enjoyable. You know, uh, I think, I think, uh, you're, you're spot on there with, with bringing those people along. And like you said, if the, if the hunting's uh, terrible, at least, uh, you're still having a good time with good friends. Yeah. Because, you know, again, I'll go back to you being a big game hunter or I call it big game. It's certainly b- bigger than a pheasant. You know, <laughs> right. Yep. Being a deer hunter, which is the probably, I'm sure it's the percentage wise. There's more deer hunters than anything else out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. A lot of bird hunters are part-time deer hunters. Right. Uh, you know, the return on investment for your shot is, <laughs> is used. A lot more per pound per bullet, you know. That's right. Um, but yeah, if 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 I'm a year ago, I was in North Dakota, and we went with the intention. I took my neighbor and his son, and one of my old friends and one of my newer friends, and uh, I think I think my total bird count was two birds. Okay. Uh, on that trip. And it was one of my favorite trips ever, you know, hmm. where like if I was a deer hunter and I went for a week somewhere and, and, and this happens to deer hunters all the time. Oh, right? yeah. Get it. But if I went for a week somewhere and didn't get a deer, I'd, I'd probably quit. You know, yeah, right, right. Like, and I could go for a week bird hunting and get a bird and feel like it's a total success. Yeah. Um, now, my Boy. last the North Dakota, I got several birds, plenty of birds, but I, I, I balance that with that's, that's, that's not going to feed my family or fill my freezer. It fills, it fills my desires and my passions, which are people and dogs. And, yep. um, it's, I've never, now I will say I have shot, let's see, two bear, no, three bear, two deer, two caribou in my entire life. And that's only because somebody said, come here and do this. I'm like, cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, panned out. it panned out real well, you know, yeah. But you're, there's no way I'm going to be planning a trip. Uh, yeah. I, I, I have a very, very narrow tunnel view of hunting and it's gotta be, it's gotta be friends first dogs right there at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and success is success is going on the trip for me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good a- attitude to have about it, and a good perspective to to really uh, you know pack along with you each time you leave. Uh, so much so much uh, about hunting goes back to those relationships that <clears throat> that we have. Even even as solitary deer hunters, you know, you're out there in the the deer stand. What's the first thing you do when when something cool happens? You yeah. know, you're you're on the phone with a buddy, you know, and yeah. you're telling you're telling the whole story and and uh, walking down the 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 details and everything else. So it's yeah. it's 
absolutely true with, and I think once again, you know, we go kind of come full circle here as, as we wrap it up, but you know, with this being such a part of who all of us are as people, whether we like it or not, or realize it or not, you know, hunting is woven into our DNA. And I think that need to share it with a community is woven into our DNA right along with it. You know, it's not, it's not meant to be something that, that, uh, is just totally kept to ourselves and, and, uh, you know, the handing down the knowledge from father to son or, uncle to, to niece or, or, uh, you know, grandfather to, to granddaughter, whatever, you know, it's, there's, there's something about it that, that, uh, certainly makes that human element, that, that attachment to each other, uh, so much deeper, I think through hunting. So, yeah, I like that perspective. Well, Hey, as we uh, wrap, wrap this up, I'm sure people are going to want to hear more from Ron Bame. Uh, you're you're a fun guy to listen to. I like the way you approach things. You got a good. You have a great sense of humor, by the way. Do you remember? Uh, of course, I'm sure you remember. But do you remember your uh, bid to uh, uh, during the uh, Ranella Patelis campaign? Your your bid to uh, head up. ATF. I yeah. I thought I thought that was uh, perfect, man. That you would have had my vote for sure. Yeah, that was uh, that was an easy. I just I, I listened to that little spoof that Steve and Yanni did. And I'm like, oh, I set the camera up and I and I explained to him how I would be the best director for alcohol, tobacco and firearms because <laughs> not that many people have spent as much as I have on all three things. <laughs> who could be more qualified, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I there is not many people who know more about all three subjects than I do. <laughs> that's true there that's an interesting venn diagram there where where ron just sits in the middle that was a great little video you did a few years ago i think it highlighted your 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 clever sense of humor for sure but uh yeah people want to tune in it's the hunting dog podcast right yep hunting dog podcast and uh this is my eighth year of doing it when i jumped into the fray uh it was there was no there was no Upland bird hunting podcast and uh, a little hats off or really hats off to Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan got Steve Ranella on board to do a podcast. And I was on the hunt in Texas when they brought out the recording equipment. I said, what are we doing? He said, we're going to do a podcast. I'm like, cool. You know? And then when I realized that all you needed was a recorder and a kitchen table, I went home, I went home and ordered a, portable recorder and started recording stories and uh yeah so yeah hunting dog podcast uh we are uh i i found that what i like about the podcast world i'm sure there's some people who are competitive no matter what they do but it always seems like there's room for more content you'll find someone that you like listening to some whatever your one of the guys used to work for me he said, I, I heard about this podcast you're doing. He says, I don't even, I don't know how, and I showed him how to upload, you know, get a podcast link on his phone. And I said, Bruce, I said, you're a wrestler your whole life. You still coach wrestling. You'll find wrestling podcasts. And he, next time I saw him, he goes, I can't believe it. that's all I listen to is wrestling. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love the, I love the, I love conversations, obviously. And I, I, this whole world that uh, is opened up by people like you and I have never met uh, mm-hmm. our 
paths may or may not cross, but just like when you meet a, a deer hunter or a bird hunter or a duck hunter, um, you, you'd be more than willing to share the story. Oh and yeah. I will segue that with the, 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 uh, I'm going to say it's my mantra. Um, I haven't patented it and I haven't got a trademark on it. And I, every once in a while in a moment of clarity, I'll just come up with something and people are like, wow, that's good. And I'm like, I thought this one was good. Yeah. And it's the quote is for me, it's always been about the friends and the dogs that we know the ones that have passed on and the ones that we have yet to meet. Mm, love how's, it. That, how's that for that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, that wouldn't get you to cry grand, grand finale right there. That's, that's good for sure. I, I love that. And, and, uh, you know what it does is it recognizes each of those things as an individual, you know, you never want to, when you lose a dog, you never replace it. You, you just find another personality to adopt into your life. And, and, uh, uh, it's the same way with hunting buddies. You know, you talked about a little bit about your hunting buddy who you can't, uh, do the walking so much anymore, but still is a part of that circle of, of friends and, and that community and, and, uh, yeah, that's you can't say it any better than that. It's very, it's very succinct and and hits it right on the head for sure. So, yeah, make sure you check out the Hunting Dog Podcast. Also, uh, uh, Ron, what's your uh, Instagram handle again? Is it the Honey at the Hunting Dog Podcast on Instagram as well, or do you have a, a different account? No, it should be Hunting Dog Podcast. Yep. Okay. Yep. So check that out. And there's all kinds of good content on on there too and more of the uh, stuff that's kind of in line of the atf uh video you know there's some there's some good uh humored stuff on there too that that ron puts up there and yeah. and uh, the podcast is a good listen i get to listen uh to a lot of podcasts while i'm working um which is cool so uh i enjoy listening to ron's podcast while i'm while i'm busy working and uh what's really cool about listening to his podcast is i'm working you know where and and fields of prairie grass so it's like so appropriate you know <laughs> yeah hey i might hit you up for uh some uh, wildflower seeds and some pollinators we last uh two years ago when pheasants forever sent me their pollinator kit of course i'm not a gardener and those pollinators i think one of them lasted but oh. we decided to quit mowing a, a a chunk of the backyard and just let weeds grow yeah and, and it's amazing what moved into there but oh I, yeah I did have a friend that I met that got like a, a, a batch of seeds from PF. And mm-hmm. he's got this incredible fall color array of everything that I was just shocked at it. So Ken, I might hit you up for a oh yeah, man. Of seeds with that it's gotta grow in Michigan, sandy soil. You'll figure it out. Oh and, yeah. Yeah, we'll get you taken care of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you you'd be glad to have it. There's no doubt about that. You know what, Ron? I think you should uh, head out this way sometime, and I could uh, put together a good weekend of of chasing roosters and quail here in South Central Iowa. We got, uh, of course, the farm that I live on here is uh, well. When, last night, when my buddy and I were uh, tracking a deer, we uh, about got scared half to death by in the pitch black by a rooster, you know, exploding. <laughs> <laughs> five feet away from me but but uh yeah we got we got all sorts of good ground around here so come on out and we'll uh, show you the prairie farm and and uh get after a few birds 
I would love that. I, I take people up on invites all the time. Trust me. Um, yeah. If it's a new place to go, uh, as long as you've seen a bird there in the last year, I'll take it. <laughs> walk with your Brittany and see if he uh, see if he can find something to roll in. Oh yeah, he'll find something to roll in. Don't you worry about it. And he'll he'll find a way to get me hollering at him too. I'm sure. But uh, that's. <laughs> That's what he does. That's what he does best. So, well, thanks so much, Ron, for coming on the show. And uh, thank you to everyone tuning in. Don't forget this podcast is presented by Spartan Forge. I know this is a bird hunting podcast, but you can certainly use Spartan Forge for your bird hunting as well with the mapping side of that. Get some landowner permission and, uh, you know, even look at the forecast a little bit. It doesn't just give you deer intel. It gives you all the other stuff you need to know when you're getting out into the field to hunt keep you from getting lost, which can definitely happen if you're walking through that tall prairie grass. But uh, check out Spartan Forge, and then don't forget about good old Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts. Uh, you'd be happy to know, East to West Hunts, he got his domain back, and uh, so you can either go to alexgruen.com or easttowesthunts.com, and uh, you can pick up Alex's hunt planning services through his website don't forget the promo code first gen 10 save yourself 10 percent. do that dream hunt bring your dogs with you bring your friends with you and uh you know what else take care and take someone hunting